Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to my next podcast here at Swim for Try. I'd like to introduce Susie Rogers and Michelle Weltman, two of my favorite people from the world of para swimming. Um, I've known both for quite some time now through uh, my association with the Otter Swimming Club, the master's team I used to race for. Michelle was a lovely lady on poolside. Uh, we were sharing some lane space and, you know, you meet or you see people on poolside and you think, oh, gosh, I could learn a lot from someone like that. And we quickly became friends and sort of she helped me a lot with my coaching. So I'd like to spend the next half hour or so speaking to them about their swimming and coaching. Um, welcome to the two of you. We're in lockdown and I know we haven't been swimming, which is why we'd like to share some swimming insights. Um, are you both doing OK? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks. All good. Um, adjusting to the new life. But yeah, very, very different. But yes, enjoying, enjoying life. Susie, how are you? Do you keep him well? Uh, me, me too, yeah. Um, keeping well, just trying to keep active. I, I do miss my swimming. Obviously, can't get in the water and swim, although I don't swim as much as when I was training for the Paralympics. But I do I do miss my kind of two or three swims a week. Um, but yeah, just doing other forms of exercise, keeping busy, working, that kind of thing. And, and I have to say, sometimes swimming with you in your retirement phase, you wouldn't actually believe you you have retired you're still quite competitive aren't you was um, that you was that you I laughing mean, michelle I, it's funny because i think a lot of people talk about muscle memory and i do believe that um and michelle will probably agree with me as well because she's coached me as well throughout my career and she'd always say you know you don't you don't really lose it it's, it's almost like riding a bicycle isn't it when you train so much and for so long um you think you're going to slow down and of course i'm slower than i was but it's all relative and I'm certainly the, the kind of fitness to keep going through the session. That doesn't seem to ever stay, uh, go away. It, I, I, I would agree with you, although you're still quite young, I think. I'm, I'm finding it a little bit harder these days. <laughs> uh, how, did you, how did you both come to find swimming originally? How, how, Michelle, you, you grew up in... So I grew up in Zimbabwe. Um, I jumped into a pool at the age of two. Um, everyone jumped in after me. They freaked out. I swam to the side, climbed out. At that time, at that time, there were no teachers willing to teach me. My mother had to literally bribe someone to teach me. Um, and I, from that point on, they couldn't get me out the water. So I was a swimmer. Moved to Israel when I was 12. Um, got really ill. Lost the hearing in one of my ears. Carried on swimming, but kind of like had lost the edge that I had and started then freaking out as being a competitive swimmer and thinking, oh, I'm not as good as I should be. And in the end, I just packed it all in and at 16, took up coaching the age group swimmers at the club. So, you know, oh. I, was always, I was always destined to be involved in swimming um, and just change from being a swimmer to then starting coaching. That's interesting. That's it. So, Susie, how, how did you come to find swimming? Um, well, originally, um, when I was a kid, so I was born without my um, lower left leg and left arm, and um, I think my parents just sort of wanted me to be active, but they needed to find what I was sort of able to do, and uh, I, it was my, my dad, isn't, <laughs> he, he, we were living in Egypt when I was a child, and um, I was about sort of six, and my sister was very good, she's four years older, she's very good at swimming, but she just never did it competitively. And I remember watching her 
um, swimming and doing such a great freestyle stroke in Egypt. And I just wanted to be in the water. I love being in the water. And so my dad, I had my armbands on. And the way I learned to swim was my dad basically just put me in the pool one day with my armbands on. And then as I was swimming, whipped them off me. And then was like, right, off you go. Um, and and I, I don't know how I didn't drown, but obviously I must have, you know, quickly got used to it. So that's how I learned to swim. It was quite um, quite a sudden sudden entry into swimming um but I actually found professional swimming a lot later and pretty much when I met Michelle as well it was at a similar time when I started I'd moved to London I joined Otter Swimming Club uh the coach at the time Steve uh was good friends with Michelle and um because Michelle had a lot of experience coaching you know incredible para swimmers right away up to the Paralympic Games successfully um I would go and get sort of advice and support from Michelle, even though she didn't coach me um, individually. Um, she's definitely been there throughout the whole journey, really. She, she's good like that, isn't she? She's like the mentor. I mean, for my coaching, yeah. definitely for your swimming. So maybe not directly, but but you just sort of come back to Michelle. And, and you said you found coaching quite early, Michelle. That was just bit of frustration from pure swimming and you wanted to be involved but maybe not directly and so coaching was was a from the age of 16 yeah from 16 so I, I literally gave up swimming and started coaching the age group swimmers at the club I was swimming at in Israel um and it was you know I loved swimming and I was passionate about swimming and then when I had to do the army and when I finished the army I, I came to London and my first job I got in Hackney the first thing they said to me was, oh, you need to take blind and visually impaired swimmers to the London Youth Games. And I thought, that's interesting. Are there any blind and visually impaired swimmers in, in, in Hackney? And they kind of like said, well, um, there's a school. <laughs> so I went, I went to the school and I said, have you got any swimmers? And they said, oh, well, we can bring some swimmers for a trial. And they turned up with um, four, four swimmers. Three of them literally... Two strokes, hold on to the side. Two strokes, hold on to the side. Two strokes, hold on to the side. And that's how they swam. But there was one young girl who jumped in the water and then swam underwater in a kind of like crab-like way and wouldn't swim on the surface. So when she came to the surface, I said to her, I said, what are you doing? She said, well, I can't see. So if I swim on the bottom of the pool, I can see where I'm going because I can feel the bottom of the pool. So I kind of like, oh, okay, all right, I can, I can work with her. So I had like six weeks to get her ready to go to London Youth Games. And I taught her to swim on top of the surface, got her to try and swim as straight as she possibly could. Um, and she went to London Youth Games and won a bronze medal. At the London Youth Games, Terry Davis, who's Sharon Davis's father, was there. Right. And um, he came, he was very excited, he came over to me and said, who's the swimmer, who's the swimmer? I'm the head coach of the blind and visually impaired swimming team. I, I, who is she? Who is she? I've never seen her before. I said, well, because she's never swam before. This is her very first she's competition. New. And from that, he invited us to go to a training camp for blind and visually impaired swimmers in Worcester, Worcester College School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And the rest, you can say, is history. Gosh, and it's included trips. To, did you, you went to Athens 2004, is that right? Uh, so, I, so, um, so I coached Elaine, and she went to Europeans... A year after that um, event at, at Youth Games, she managed to go to Europeans. We missed out on going to Barcelona Paralympics. And then 
after that she was selected regularly for the GB squad. She was she was selected for Atlanta, along with at that point I'd um, found another young swimmer called Dervish, Dervish. Um, who had turned up actually to do athletics. And I convinced him that swimming was much more fun than athletics. Because <laughs> he could have done both. He was very talented. He would have been good at whatever. Convinced him, come along to swimming. Just once a week, it's fun. And, he, you know, when he tells his story, he'll say that once a week turned into twice a week, three times. And then all of a sudden, he was doing 10 times a week. So Elaine and Dervish were both selected for Atlanta. Dervish, the youngest swimmer on the team. And I'm, I, I wasn't even considered as a coach. You know, I was quite young at that point, and everyone just—I think they thought I was just a, a one-trick pony. And Ooh. I went off to Atlanta to watch the swimming, where Elaine won two silver medals, um, and Dervish made finals at the age of 15 in the hundred breast and the hundred butterfly. Um, and then the year after um, Atlanta. That's when they started having the performance program where um, swimmers were funded. And at that point, the new performance director for para swimming, or disability swimming it was at the time, uh, invited me along to be a coach on the squad. So then from then on, um, I went to Sydney, and then I went to um, Athens as well. And then for Beijing, they I, I just couldn't afford to take three weeks off work, so I just went out for the week of the swimming. But yeah, and, and that's, that's how amazing. I got kind of like involved in the coaching. And as Susie said, you know, I there there were lots of swimmers that I I don't coach, but I've been involved in their careers. Yeah. Because I've just always been around in London, um, and I'm happy to help anyone, and actually want to help any swimmer who wants to progress. It, it's it's a it's a sort of a a sport, isn't it? And that that as a coach, you just give and give, and and there's no. You know, there's there's not much reward, but we just give and give, don't we? And, and it's just the nature of swim coaching, I think. You know, very generous. I spoke to Ede the other day uh, on this podcast, and so many people have helped him, including you as well, a little bit, as we've helped him get ready to join Hackney Aquatics. Um, but yeah, that's that's lovely to hear. And all the while, this was this was taking shape, and and your Olympic career was sort of developing. But Susie, you you were still you you were training at this point, but not to taking it so seriously. Um, so I think I met Michelle probably 2009, 10 or something around that time. Oh, okay. Uh, just, just after Beijing was 2009. Yeah, two, 2009, you're right. And I just moved to London and uh, was starting a new job. And that's when I was getting into it. But I think, you know, Michelle's experience and her understanding of the Paralympics and, and particularly athletes with disabilities is pretty much a unique thing that she has and also something that's very rare in that um you know people will come to michelle coaches will come to michelle who i've worked with because they don't have that experience and have asked her advice so very often i know that michelle was behind the scenes with a lot that was going on with my career uh she might not have been directly involved but she was certainly indirectly involved um and you know things like when I would go on training camps and I remember my coach was worried because I broke down at the end of the week and he'd call Michelle and say, <laughs> I'm a bit worried about Susie. She's just lost the plot. Um, but it was just because I'd never done it before. And physically it's, you know, having one arm and leg is obviously, you know, the load is a lot harder for me to be able to take. And it's just that kind of uh, ability to adapt things for, um, which I know you've done as well, Dan, with, 
some of the disabilities you've worked with, there's a sort of element of lateral thinking and adapting and, you know, not just pushing the same stuff onto that person that you would push onto, say, someone without a disability um, and trying to kind of adapt it as you go along. But yeah, Michelle's definitely, you know, and it's still still there. I still get coached by Michelle even now. She's the one, she's the one consistent coach that has <laughs> remained throughout the entire time, definitely. Oh, there's not many that have lured me back to master swimming, but um, but definitely I very much enjoy coach uh, swimming up with Michelle. Um, and and you mentioned that unique set of qualities, and that's helped your other side uh, of your career, hasn't it, Michelle? You working with the London Marathon? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So yes, I mean you know when when I arrived in this country, as I said, one of my first jobs in Hackney was as a sports development officer for people with disabilities, and it was you know, it's something I'm passionate about and been involved with all my life. And, you know, swimming is my passion and I will do anything to help any swimmer, irrelevant of where they're from. Um, and then in Even 2008, <laughs> I was very lucky and was offered a, a job with London Marathon as the um, lead um, para-athlete manager. Um, looking after the elite wheelchair athletes at all I, at, at London Marathon, and subsequently it's just explode, expanded to to all the events that London Marathon put on. So I work with the elite athletes now, um, you know, in wheelchair racing, um, but that doesn't take away my passion and love for uh, for swimming because that is my will always be my my first love and and my main sports thing. And just to say, Dan, is as much as you've learned from me, I've also learned from you. So, you know, it's a, it's a mutual thing. <laughs> That's very kind. It's very kind. But I wanted to touch on that. And thank you for, for that, Suze. It's very kind to sort of mention that. But, you know, I, I did, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I did get quite stale with, you know, not that I've ever learned everything about any one area. I would, I would never, and, and people do say, don't they? This, as soon as you feel that, you know, you, you've, you're tired, you, you should find a challenge. But I did get a little bit stale with open water, with, um, you know, regular swim coaching. And I needed a new challenge. And I just thought, wow, this is so exciting. And, and it's dreadful to think, like, when we talk about Leo and his younger career with a swimming club, Harry was kind of shunned. I, I can't help but feel that would have been so exciting as a coach to be challenged so much more to find new levels of propulsion from somebody with disabilities. And, and I just fell into that and, and found the challenges so incredible, you know, to the point that I wanted to make odd fins for, for young Jerry Ray and, and things like that. It, it's, I, I love that. I love that. Uh, um, it's just constant challenges, isn't it? And a new, a different way of thinking. You said the word lateral, Susie. I, I, that's, I think that's spot on. Mm, yeah. I mean, it does, it does require thinking outside of the box, definitely. And even for the individual themselves, because, it, you know, actually very often Michelle would say something to me about my stroke or something I was doing that I hadn't even thought of because I suppose you when you're in your body and you know you sort of have an <laughs> awareness but I'm not actually not a lot of people and or swimmers and I'm sure you'll both agree do have a lot of body awareness which is why you often end up having to correct the stroke and the position and the body position and I think that's that's the key part to it is that 
that's where the coach comes in to really help because they're the eyes watching on the they're top, the whereas eyes. you're sort of, you know, just trying to get through the session and not die. Um, they're, <laughs> you know, you're there to, to sort of make sure that any corrections are made so that people don't get sloppy with their techniques so that they can adapt something so that it might make them more efficient. And I think efficiency is, is key for para swimmers as well as trying to, you know, expend as little energy as possible. Um, given we do use our reserves up probably quicker than, say, a, a non-disabled person. Yeah, I think also to add to that is, like, you know, for me, having coached um, para swimmers and disabled swimmers, it, I think it's made me a better coach all around because I'm much more aware of looking at how the body moves and how people move in the water because, you know, I also work with a lot of masters and quite often masters come to swimming later. They're, you know, there are quite a lot of masters who are not natural swimmers, but it's really helped me in helping develop them as swimmers because I just look at things really, really differently. And, you know, one of the things uh, I'm sure Susie will tell you is that, you know, quite often I'll get a, a swimmer with a disability come to me and say, well, I can't do that. And I, and I kind of like try and get them to think very differently and say, there's no such thing as can't. You know, we can adapt it and we can change it and we can find a way to make it happen. So when we look at someone like Leo, the really sad thing about Leo was had someone really picked up with him when yeah. he was younger, he probably could have made it. But, you know, whoever taught him to swim and whatever, they just thought that's as far as we're going to go with him and, yeah. and, and left him. And so mm. that by the time he came to really be competitive swimming, he was already in his late teens. He was 17, 18, by which point, you know, he's missed that opportunity to, to, and I'm not saying he's not good, he's pretty good and he works hard and he trains hard. But when he first came to me, the amount of time we needed to do to just break down his stroke, because no one had spent that time thinking that he can't do that because he has a disability. But just to chime into that as well, I mean, I would I would agree with that. But equally, no one taught me how to swim necessarily when I was younger, because I came into sport professionally in elite, uh, you know, much later, about mid twenties. I'd never had any training or club swimming when I was a kid. I never even thought about it, but I was always told, you know, people would be like, Susie, how do you swim in a straight line when you're missing two arms and leg, an arm and a leg on the same side? You should be swimming in a circle. <laughs> and even the, you know, GB coaches were like, I don't know how you swim in a straight line. I was balanced. But I can tell you the one thing that helped me, and this is the interesting thing, is that, you know, sometimes is to bring it back to the rules. I, you know, my sister is not disabled. She um, has two arms and two legs. She just had a brilliant style. And I would just copy her. I would watch the way she moved in the water. I would study it. So I would say the onus as well comes slightly onto the individual too, yeah. you know, to, to pick up from other people, to watch. And I think that makes a good swimmer is... Uh, someone that's got that awareness they're not always relying on the coach to pick up on everything they're obviously that's key as mentioned uh, and encouragement probably in leo's case is, is very crucial you need that confidence and encouragement but i think learning for yourself is one thing i always Im impress on athletes it's very important to study your sport and to understand and to watch others uh, that you know swim well and to learn and to follow um i think those are key as well I think that's a good point because I remember from quite a young age, I was, I used to love watching the Olympics, you know, 84 LA, 88 Seoul. I had friends in uh, racing in Seoul and, and I'd love to watch the medalists look at their technique and, and perhaps 
you know, being critical and over, uh, you know, highly analytical, it probably detracted from my own swimming career a little bit as I was, you know, without realizing it, I was becoming, you know, a, a coach without realizing it. But I think when that bo you boil that down, it is, it, you know, you're a student of the sport, you watch, you learn. And, and I used to really just love that. It's interesting. Um, so, Michelle, you, you've, you've gone through several Olympics and you've now taken the wheelchair racing to the level that your team actually goes to the, the, the classic, the big marathons around the world. How, how has that evolved? So um, when I started at London Marathon, there was a marathon majors for elite runners. And straight away, I kept going on at the race director at the time, Dave Beckford, and just kept saying, why aren't we doing, you know, why aren't we doing world marathon majors for the wheelchair athletes? And he kind of like said, well, you know, there's no funding and, you know, people aren't interested and there's no demand for it. So slowly, slowly, um, you know, I, I talked to the athletes. I, I got to know them pretty well, um, you know, and we eventually, you know, I kind of like went back and said, you know, there's an appetite for this. So in 2012, I managed to convince him that London Marathon's always a week before Boston Marathon. That even if we couldn't do a marathon majors, maybe we could do a London-Boston, a Boston-London challenge to get athletes doing London and and um, Boston at the same time. So in wheelchair racing, wheelchair racers can do two or three marathons, one after the other, unlike runners. So eventually we agreed to that and we sat down. I remember during the Olympics, um, sitting down with Dave Bedford, the race director, Tom Grilk from Boston, and myself, and we sat down and I presented them with this idea about this challenge with prize structure and how it would work and point structure and everything. And it was pretty successful. And it was so successful that Chicago and New York are two weeks apart came and said, you know, we really want to do a challenge on that. And then at that point, there was a new um, sponsor coming on board, which was Abbott, World, Abbott. And Abbott turned around and said, actually, you want the wheelchair race to be part of the marathon majors. So I then had to sit down and put together a, a proposal for how, how it would work. But basically what we did was we based it on exactly on how the runners work. Uh, the only difference being that wheelchair athletes will probably do can and will do most, you know, can do all of the marathon majors in one year. So we had to work out this point system that would allow them, you know, so that they didn't get, you know, if someone chose not to do a marathon, they wouldn't be penalized for not doing it. So, so yeah, so that's, that's how it's happened. And then from that, I've, I've, you know, I now coordinate the series and, um, you know, I, I've, I, I say I've been exceptionally lucky because I've, traveled with work i've traveled with um with swimming and i'm now traveling um with my job at um, london marathon so you know i i am you know sports has given me so much you know it's given me a career it's given me everything so you know i'm that's fantastic and i'll do anything i can do to help anybody else you, you you just sort of said the word you just mentioned that you know people weren't interested in in the disability sport but things changed in 2012 when the Olympics were here in London. Is that is that fair? Did would, was the press correct to sort of observe that? You were both involved, I believe, and Susie, it was your breakthrough year. Yeah, it was my um, yeah. That was that was my first games. First games. Um, London 2012. I mean, it was incredible, really. I mean, Michelle, what was your? I can't remember what 
you were you were definitely there but i'm not I, sure I, yeah, well, so so i wasn't there as a coach or anything because at that point i'd stopped coaching elite swimmers because i just didn't have time with london marathon but london marathon organized the race walks the right. olympic marathon and the paralympic marathon so i was working on all those events and you know was part of that whole thing anyway it, yeah it was very it was such a magical time i mean i just remember the positive atmosphere you know it was uk at its best you know everyone was very very um you know everyone was brought together by sport but then there were like lots of things going on all over the country and and it just it felt like one massive celebration so it was great to be part of it and and the 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 usual disparity between the olympics and the paralympics it just didn't seem maybe we were a little bit bias because we were living here and, and involved with both but it just didn't seem to be sort of the after event there was actually you know tv shows um you know featuring dis disabled presenters that suddenly materialized we'd never seen before i mean you know and that lasted through to rio are we still riding a a wave of that is that is it still ongoing i, th I think so i mean i think it's kick-started um it, you know it, sport is not responsible entirely for changing things and there's still a lot that needs to be done certainly in the uk you couldn't say it's fixed everything no. and, and made things easier for people with disabilities but i would say that it brought people with disabilities to a visible level it showed the credibility of Paralympic sport. It showed that it isn't just an add-on and that it is an event in its own right and that the athletes train incredibly hard and, you know, that, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it being, it's great to see it rising in the prominence it's getting, definitely. And I, I think I'd add as well that, you know, not every, not every disabled person is going to be a Paralympian, but what 2012 did was as Susie said, just um, elevate um, para-athletes. Actually, they, they're professional athletes too, but it doesn't fix everything. It doesn't solve the issues that disabled people face on a day-to-day -day basis. But what it has done, it has given recognition to those athletes who train exceptionally hard, and, you know, and, and, and it's given them the kudos that they deserve. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um you know, we, we you, can you can you see um, the intricacies of classification being made a little bit easier to the outside to the outsider? Do you feel that, you know, in, enough is given enough information is given to help them break that down? Is the system just a little bit too complex as it is? Could it be made easier? Is it balanced? Um, I mean, just jumping in, it's a controversial area um, <laughs> and I wouldn't. I would, I would, I would hasten to, to give out my opinion. I still think they have to do a lot more to make it more accessible for the public. Uh, there's still a lot of questions out there. Uh, there's still a robustness needed for that system that isn't there yet, certainly on swimming. Um, I think they're on that journey. I don't know how long that will take, but I think because Paralympic sport is so young, it's a journey that's going to take time. And it's a similar thing with, you know, anti-doping. You know, these things develop slowly it, it and, needs evolve to evolve. and yeah. you know i think it's just trying to catch up with that but i'd be interested to know what michelle thinks no i agree i think you know the classification system classification is set up to make the sports fair but actually it's still in its infancy you know the paralympic movement is not that old and it's gone through many many um changes to get where it is today and it's still not right 
um, and it's about trying to make it as fair as possible for everyone in this, you know, in the sport. And sometimes it doesn't do that, and so you know there will be people that will lose out on it. It is controversial. It is difficult to understand, and you know it's it's not it's not a subject you know that's really easy to talk about um, without getting into a whole debate about it. But you know it's it's about um, making the sport as fair as possible, and that that still needs some work on it. And, and I, it, yeah, I agree. And if people are just talking about it, it, it shows a level that it is become it is coming to the surface. It is becoming thought about, and, and you know there'll be, you know, decisions we don't agree with and other decisions we don't understand. But you know, it as you say, it is it's evolving, and and just like so many other, you know, sideline areas within the Olympics have had to sports uh, drug taking is a, a definite Susie isn't it really you know that's mm. that's constantly the the, the authorities cat playing catch up and trying to stay one one step ahead so these things just need to evolve and the equipment's evolving now we've got debates about you know shoes and and so on um mm. I, I mean I guess sport is it's the nature of of competition isn't it yeah I mean that's true and also think these things evolve as you know science evolves so you know they, they think they figured out how to you know catch people that do cheat the system or do try to circumvent the system using performance enhancing drugs similarly with the Paralympics you know there's more of an awareness out there of different people with different impairment types as to get you know that they can actually get involved in sport and very often that opens a lot of questions around you know a new type of impairment that hasn't been seen before in the context of the sport and where that fits in and and that's something that is a decision that has to be taken by the classifiers that's quite subjective so you know it's not necessarily that they're circumventing the system but it's just that new people are getting involved in Paralympic sport as the popularity rises and increases and that can throw up a lot of questions it's true isn't it yeah it's that the questioning and, and playing catch up I mean who would have thought years ago we we used to wear two swimsuits for drag uh, <laughs> yeah. and then and then suddenly the technology evolves and you know people are racing in two suits so there was never a law to stop you racing in two suits until they realized oh actually um, you know one of them's good for buoyancy one of them's good for better you know water resistance and, and, and reduction of drag. So, you know, oh, the, 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 the rules and regs have to evolve. It's, it's a challenge, isn't it? Mm, and I'm interested to see, you know, when you look at like your fastest times in the world, if we flip to the Olympic side, my question is, when are we going to get to the point where we can't get any quicker on the different events? And that'll be interesting when we get to that point. I don't know when we'll get there. <laughs> I, yeah that often comes up doesn't it often because you know when will we reach our very fastest hundred meters or, or whatever it might be um yeah interesting just um i really appreciate the time you put into this and it's been a, a lovely discussion but Susie, you you won a bronze in london 2012 uh, three, bronze three bronze in London and then a gold and two bronze I mean, in you, Rio. You must have been pretty excited about that in London, but obviously there's that amazing picture and maybe I'll try to post it if I'm allowed uh, when yeah. we put this up. Um, you know, the gold in Rio was quite magical, wasn't it? You um, were shocked? It was yeah, it was magical for many reasons because it was a long journey to get there. It was a good eight, well, 10-year journey of slog <laughs> and learning and mistakes being made along the way. And it was a chance moment that I wasn't expecting. And, and it sounds mad to say that I didn't expect to win. But, I, you know, I, you try your best as an athlete, but you have to sort of manage your own expectations. 
And so when I actually touched in and I turned around and I was the first to touch in and it took it did it took me a long time to get over the shock. Um, and that, that's and th- absorbing that moment, you know, it was it was very special. It was a it was a wonderful time. It, you know, it's something that I can't really put into words. Um, you know, but every medal I have um, has a story, and every medal has a, its own journey that I needed to get there. And the medal itself doesn't matter. It's the journey that's the incredible part. And then you know, it's lovely to have something shiny at the end. But the memories that you have are how you got there and and what you learned to get there yeah, and and you're right because it, with a a little bit like running on the track when you on the, on the shorter distances distances and you stay in lane on the pool you're obviously for those that haven't done much pool swimming and and obviously we are predominantly addressing triathletes through this today but obviously you're in your own lane in the pool and you're in control of your own performance but the result is not something you really have control of, is it? In the shortest races, perhaps longer distances, you you can sort of work with someone, you can pace things, but you know, so you could touch and and you've done your best. It could be you were fourth, you were first, you were tenth. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, when I think back, because I used to race the slightly longer distances as well. Uh, 400 was my longest distance, 400 freestyle, and I remember that that race was like. The level of pain, as you as you both know, is something that you just, it's awful. And you get to the end of it and you're like, oh, no, I've only turned. I've got another hundred to go. You know, you're on the third hundred. And that, I mean, I didn't even do eight hundreds or fifteen hundreds. I don't know how people do them. But I, I do, you know, the difference with that where it's tactical and it's just long slog and you feel like it's never going to end versus... 50 meters where you literally have no time to think it is about rehearsal i mean i would say the one thing that was was that i did a lot and that served me well was just rehearsing that race over and over and over again and that you can do that with a 50 it's a bit harder with a 400 because you actually have to do it in a competition setting but you can do a 50 in training all the time and i used to do it over and over again sometimes suited sometimes not uh, trying different things out looking at stroke rate until when it got to the point of being on the blocks, I can honestly say it just was automatic rather than actually me thinking at all. You don't have time to think in a 50 metres, Susie. No, definitely I, I, not. I've, I've quite enjoyed that switch to open water because you can be in a pack. It is more tactical. You know, you can be working together and you will pretty much know the result as that pack, you know, approaches the, the finish line. Uh, have you you've both enjoyed the shift to to open water swimming a little bit now? Is that something recent, or was it in the back of your minds? A pair of you, Michelle. I know you're involved with swim serpentine uh, a little bit now as well. So yeah, for me, o- op- open water was interesting because I hate cold water. But <laughs> it was well, I, well you know, I grew up in hot countries, so I don't like yeah, cold true. water. Um, but it was interesting that when we started swim serpentine. Um, I was determined um, that we had an event for Paris swimmers. Um, and I fought pretty hard for that to happen. And, you know, there is no real Paris swimming open water, but I know there are a lot of Paris swimmers who love open water and a lot of swimmers who are doing triathlons, Paris swimmers doing triathlons. So we initiated an event in there. Um, and it was kind of like, uh, how can I ask all my swimmers to go open water <laughs> when I don't even get in and try it? So 
I shipped it to it, and I really do love it, but I, I've, it, it's, it's got to be a bit warmer for it's me good. to get into the open water. Um, and I've done quite a few of my own open water events and um, really enjoyed it. So, you know, I, I really enjoy it, but as I said, I don't like the cold water. And so you've actually tried tri- uh, triathlon as well, is that correct? Was it as a relay, or have you done individual as well? No, no, I haven't done triathlon, but I do. Um, I I have tried open water, yeah, since I retired. Because the thing is, they kind of discourage us from doing open water as pool swimmers because they didn't want us to get sort of you know colds or illness or get you know cool like get too too cold. So um, I never used to do open water. So when I retired, I thought, right, you know, new thing. And and I have to say, the the elements I love about it, for instance, you know, stubbers with your session on a Saturday, Dan. Um, you know that it's lovely the nature is what I love about it it's the you know I don't see it as a competitive thing I see it all my swimming now is more holistic and it's more you know mind and body well-being and um, I do I do really love being in nature and swimming past you know ducks and um, (laughs) you know it's it's a little bit strange when you first start I mean it's a completely different kettle of fish I I definitely feel like it's a lot uh different to swimming in a pool where you can see the bottom where you can see your hand in front of you you know sometimes you don't get that luxury it's cold like michelle (laughs) says um i have done a couple of races i did the mile in henley and and i mean it was downstream so that helped um so you know if if it's it depends because you're dealing with elements that are totally not they're out of your control and they're they're things that you don't normally have but i mean the one thing i love is being in the sea and being in oceans and swimming in in the sea so for me open water is is key to getting into the sea and swimming and being in salt water which i i just love i do that all the time uh, so i need to do more of that it's on my list to go and do a nice holiday which involves sea swimming wonderful wonderful the pair of you um, it's just, it's just to say dan that you know it's it's because of you that i do open water swimming because you've kind of like encouraged me to get in and to to do open water swimming um so you know don't underestimate your influence on on absolutely on yeah. as well i i, I literally yeah. dragged you there yeah <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate your time um We've run over, but it's been so interesting and, and I love speaking about swimming and the two of you fascinating uh, subjects and, and your careers have been wonderful. So I do appreciate that. Um, good luck with the rest of lockdown. I can't wait to see you on poolside, the pair of you again soon. That would be so exciting. Uh, and in the meantime, um, please keep in touch. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan.